Our Bible reading today is from Acts 17, uh, verses 1 to 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Emophilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postponed and let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've um, been journeying with Paul for uh, three, four weeks now in this second missionary journey. We've had Paul's first missionary journey, um, and I'm trusting that you're getting a kind of a picture of what Paul, the person, is like. So we spent a week thinking about um, what he was like before his Damascus Road experience, how he was kind of a a, a zealous, um, single-minded activist who kind of wanted to change things and make things happen, and he took a lot of that spirit um, into the way that he... Uh, lives out his being a disciple of Jesus, being an apostle. Um, We talked about uh, how Paul um, converts Lydia as the first convert in Europe, and there's a pattern, actually, of Paul going into the homes of um, women, or women and men, um, and using those open doors to uh, share the faith. Um, Last week, we looked at Paul's response to injustice, um, to worship God even whilst imprisoned. Um, But uh, as I've been thinking about what you've heard so far, my guess is you don't have a clear picture of how it is that Paul manages to turn the world upside down, right? Because um, Caesars, Rome, Nero, like Augustus, they're the influential, powerful guys, and Jesus dies and rises somewhere, and a few people hear about this, But it's really Paul who preaches and shares the message of Christ crucified that turns the empire upside down on its head. How does he do that? What is so radical about what he's saying that it brings about kind of the transformation in Rome that ultimately kind of changes most civilizations, right? So, so now people believe in Jesus 
uh, more than any other faith anywhere in the world. Uh, and Paul is really the catalyst of bringing that message beyond a small Jewish community. So today we're going to look at Paul in Thessalonica. And it's a pretty short account, and in some ways it's actually quite unremarkable. It fits the pattern of what we've seen. Um, and so we'll look at that, and then we'll bounce off that, and we'll try and have a, a broader look at what makes Paul such a radical change agent. How does he turn the world upside down? So Paul comes to Thessalonica, as was his custom. He goes to the synagogue first. Why? Because he's going to Jews saying, your long-awaited Messiah has come. And that's what he says this time. On three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul's going to a community that reads the Scriptures every Sabbath, that expounds the Scriptures, that believe that it's in the Scriptures that this messianic hope is foretold. And Paul says to that community, to that um, believe those who believe in the authority of Scriptures, let me show you from Scripture that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Of course, we saw that when Paul goes to non-Jewish communities, he doesn't quote Scripture, and we're going to see that next week in Athens. But he's with Jews this week, but not only Jews. Some Jews are persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So it appears that there is a number of God-fearing Greeks in the first century who go to the synagogue and hang around with the Jews in whatever conversations Jews are kind of having, as well as some prominent women. What's going on there? I don't know if you've kind of picked that up or thought about that. We tend to imagine that it's only Jews in the synagogue in the first century, but we're getting a sense that actually there's some God-fearing Greeks and women who are there. Well, Paul shares, and some believe, a number of the God-fearing Gentiles believe, prominent women believe, and the Jews get jealous. So they round up some bad characters, males from the marketplace, form a mob, have a riot. We've seen all this before, and it will happen again. And here's the charge. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. That's how the NIV translates what the mob says. But I prefer the translation from the ESV. These men who have turned the world upside down. That's quite a claim, isn't it? This is not just some minor dispute between two different factions of Judaism that's kind of happening in the synagogue that has no implications for anybody else. Paul turns the world upside down. He's disturbing the peace throughout the whole empire. That's how another translation puts it. That's quite a claim. So let's turn our minds and think about precisely how does religion work? in the first century? And the short answer is, everybody worships the gods. Uh, in fact, the universality of religion is one of the most significant arguments for God. Every single culture in all of human history has always believed in some or other sort of divine. And in the ancient world, 
That's exactly how it is. Everyone believes in the gods. And the first type of beliefs that seem to come to people are what we call animistic beliefs. So people imagine that somehow the gods animate the universe. What does that look like? Well, if we take the Greek version, there is a father god and there's a mother god and there's a god of the sea or the rivers and there's a god of death and there's a god of war and there's a god of love and there's a god of fertility and and the Jews, um, they don't believe in these sorts of gods but everybody else we've encountered has gods that animate certain things. These are the Greek gods, there's 12 of them actually uh, who hang out in the Parthenon and something happens when Rome builds an empire, right? So uh, originally, people used to say, well, our gods defeated your gods, our gods are better than your gods, you better believe our gods and not believe your gods. Rome does something different. They actually say, you know what? Your gods and our gods are kind of similar. So just like there's a Greek father god, Zeus, and a Greek mother god, when the Romans turn up, they say, oh, guess what? We've got a father god and he's called Jupiter. So somehow Jupiter and Zeus are just kind of different names for the same kind of god. And when they go to Britain or when they go to Egypt or when they go over to Syria, they're going to find different local gods again, but somehow they just kind of fuse all the categories and sort of say, well, you call your god tomato, we call ours tomato, same deal, right? Um, whatever it is, just keep worshipping your gods and whatever the local customs are, so long as everybody worships the gods, let's just keep doing that. And then they do a couple of other things, right? So everyone worships the gods and the local gods have some local customs and idiosyncrasies that you might have to get your head around, but basically there's an assumption that there's categories of gods that are kind of universal. And the gods of the ancient Near East are irritable. They're easily upset, right? And it's not so much that they're upset by humans. In fact, the gods fight against each other, and some of them have won, and some of them have lost, and some of them have been cheated on, and some of them have been unfaithful to their spouses. And so the gods are always bickering and cranky, and um, they don't really care much for humanity, except when ha humanity gets annoying, and then they kind of do something uh, to make humans' lives difficult. And so you've got to placate the gods. You've got to keep the gods happy. You've got to somehow maintain this sense of balance and peace and harmony in the universe, but it's all quite fragile. And you do that by making offerings to the gods. And everyone has to make the offerings. It's not that the gods kind of look down and go, actually, you're nice, but you're not so nice. So, you know, no, it, like the whole season can fail. Everyone can experience a famine. The gods don't kind of individualize their punishment. And so corporately together, we all have to acknowledge and placate the gods. And there's something collective about the way that we practice um, routines and habits and rituals in the first century. Now, you might think this sounds like nonsense, right? But actually, this kind of thinking is alive and well in the 21st century. 
Uh, apparently, when Liverpool players walk onto Anfield, that's their football stadium, they touch that sign. All of them, all of them have to touch it. Right? And there was a game recently where Liverpool was playing Manchester United, and I think that's Virgil van Dijk, he's a Dutch player, he's putting his hand up and touching the sign, and next to him is a guy who has just come to England from Europe. Veghorst is his name, he's also Dutch, and he touches the sign. And he does this, trying to stir up his Dutch teammate, who happens to be on the opposition. And they go out onto the pitch, and Manchester United loses 7-0 to Liverpool. That is unheard of. And social media gets a hold of this picture and goes wild. It's Weghurst's fault because he touched the sign. Can you hear that? Uh, Australian cricket's no different, right? Apparently, if somebody's on 87, everybody in the dressing room lifts their feet. And if one person doesn't lift their feet, then it's possible this person's going to get on an 87, right? So this kind of combined uh, superstition actually still happens today, right? And so part of what you're meant to do is, as an individual, you've got to keep practicing the, uh, the sacrifices and the rituals and kind of acknowledge the gods, and you do that in your home, but more importantly, you do it corporately. And so the temple in the first century is not just a place where you go and pray, it's actually a place where you offer sacrifices, and then once the sacrifice has been made, the meat that has um, had sacrifices made over it actually becomes the meat that you eat for dinner, right? And so the temple is a temple and a butcher and uh, a wholesaler that then provides meat and other grains to the markets, and it's all some, some kind of a civic building where we actually all gather together around important events in the calendar of the community. Now, the gods somehow even get involved in human affairs. And so if you happen to know Homer's Iliad, or perhaps you've seen the movie Troy, that's probably where you're more familiar um, with, with kind of that plot, right? Um, Homer is fighting Achilles, and half the gods line up with Homer, and the other half line up with Achilles. And the gods really don't care whether Homer or Achilles wins, but it kind of becomes an excuse for the gods to resume their fights with each other. Right? So this is kind of how first century people think the world kind of works. That's who Paul is sharing the gospel with, right? So here's what the Romans do. They say, keep worshipping your local gods, but Julius Caesar believes that when he dies, he actually goes and somehow becomes one of the gods, and Caesar Augustus, Julius's son, therefore is a son of God. And as a son of God, just like Homer or Achilles, he has some capacity to make some kind of special connection and get favours, influence the gods, so that the gods somehow look after the well-being of whoever happens to come under Caesar Augustus's umbrella. And so, 
Caesar is called Jesus, or sorry, he's called Saviour and Lord because he is a son of God. I take it this is all sounding familiar. This is the vocab of first century Rome, right? Why is Caesar Lord and Saviour? Because he's the person who's got the capacity to bring harmony between earth and the gods. To make sure that the rains come. To make sure that the crops don't fail. To make sure that we win our battles. Because he's got contacts with the gods of war. He's the person who brings justice and prosperity and well-being to the empire. And you can trust in Caesar. So when you're feeling anxious because the rains are a little bit late or about your health because your daughter is unwell or whatever it is, somehow you can placate the gods and you can pray to Caesar and Caesar will bring peace and prosperity to the entire empire. So what does that mean about the Jews? Because the Jews don't fit this. Right? You think about it. If everybody's going onto the pitch at Anfield and one person doesn't touch the sign, well, it's all undone, isn't it? And that's how people in the first century view the Jews. They're this weird little exclusive sect off to the side that, ha- that, that they just don't fit in with the rest of us. They're called atheists because, well, what do you do in religion, right? You have idols and you make sacrifices to them and you have priests who make your sacrifices on their behalf and then you have rituals like eating food sacrificed to idols at kind of corporate gatherings and that's how you keep the gods happy and the Jews do absolutely none of those. They meet in a building called the synagogue and they read the Bible and they talk about it. That's not religion. That's atheism in the first century. And that makes everybody else vulnerable because they're not placating the gods. And so the Jews are viewed with great suspicion. But there's a reason they don't have to do this. Turns out, Julius Caesar in about 50 AD, when he's at war with the other great rival of the day, Pompey, finds himself in a pickle and about 3,000 Jews send an army and come to his rescue. And Caesar kind of takes a liking to the Jews and he cuts a deal with them. He says, you don't have to pray to Caesar and treat me as a god. You actually can pray for Caesar to your god and that will be good enough. And it's only the Jews who get this exemption. Now, I think we're ready to go back to Paul. Sorry, we're not. Uh, We need to deal with this first. Why are there God-fearers at the temple? What's going on there? How come it's not just Jews? Well, there are a few people in the first century who find Judaism or the God of Judaism an attractive proposition. Rather than gods who are fickle and fighting and unfaithful and self-absorbed, Judaism posits this God who is loving and just and who knows you personally. And that thought is appealing. It's kind of less 
confusing. It's a, it's a bit simpler. It's a bit neater. And it's a bit more personable. Uh, and, and in addition, the clean, simple living of the Jews, that, that kind of piousness, that also has an appeal in a culture, in a time where often, you know, might is right and, and you can do to your slave whatever you like uh, and um, the winners take all of the glory. Uh, and, and so some people are drawn to that dimension of Judaism. And so there are some Gentiles, God-fearers they're called, who actually come and join the Jews in their synagogue gatherings. And uh, many of the uh, adult males can't quite bring themselves to be circumcised, um, and so they're God-fearers, and then they might choose to have their children circumcised when their children are born, and they sort of can join into the Jewish faith that way. So there are some God-fearers who are... They don't quite fit the system, but they're sort of attaching themselves to the Jews and the Jewish exemptions. All right, now we'll come back to the text. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So the God-fearing Greeks and the prominent women who are attending the synagogue, they get it, this message of Paul, more so than what the Jews do. And, and it seems like the majority of them end up joining this new movement, this new kingdom that breaking in that Paul's talking about. And this upsets the Jews. They get jealous. And so they go to where Paul and Silas are staying, Jason's house. He's not there, so they grab Jason instead and listen to the accusation that they bring. They, Paul and Silas, are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. They're accusing Paul of, what shall we call it, sedition? They're saying, there's rules about what Gentiles can and can't do. The exemption doesn't apply to them. And they're saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So therefore, they're going to stop praying to the emperor. That's not dissimilar to what happens in Philippi. What was the accusation there? These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They're making atheists of the religious Gentiles. That's in essence what we're saying here. So let me put this in point form. What's Paul doing? He's encouraging Gentiles to stop making sacrifices to the gods. To stop praying and worshipping the emperor. And this makes everyone nervous. It makes the Jews nervous because suddenly the next time something goes wrong, they realise they're more prone to copying the blame. They're also conscious that they have kind of an exemption, but somehow Paul is kind of adding on some, some Jewish, semi-Jewish sect and arguing that the exemption somehow applies to them, and the Jews are thinking, man, we're going to cop it. This is all going to come unstuck. This kind of uneasy truce that we've got, it's going to fall apart. And so they take what is essentially um, a spiritual disagreement, and they turn it into a civic disagreement and go to the courts and say, these guys are wrong. They're actually being unlawful. 
and they fear monger amongst the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will be afraid because they're a superstitious lot. What's going to happen if, if our fellow citizens stop offering sacrifices, stop praying for, to Caesar? My goodness, the rains aren't going to come. The crops are going to fail. Our children will die in childbirth. This is going to be disastrous. We can't have this. We've got to stop this. But Paul's doing slightly more than that. Remember the claim? Paul is saying that somebody other than Caesar is Lord. He's calling Jesus Lord. He's subversive. He's a dissident. What are the Gentiles hearing when Paul says Jesus is Saviour and Lord? They're hearing far more than I feel guilty about my sin and Jesus is going to deal with that guilt and I can be sure about what's going to happen to me in eternity. That, that, that is all true, but they're hearing far more than just that. Right? What they're actually hearing is Caesar's not going to bring justice. Caesar's not going to bring security. He's not going to bring health. He's not going to bring well-being. It's, it's Jesus who brings all of that. Trust in Jesus and the 70, 80, 90% of people who live on or below the poverty line. They've got really pragmatic concerns. Where's my food going to come from? How's my sick child going to get healed? Will the rains come? And what about that enemy and that battle that's kind of happening over there? Or that disease, that pandemic that's coming? Trust in Jesus. He will somehow... Deal with all of those kind of concerns. And then Paul invites Gentiles to become non-conformists and step out of mainstream society and, and join this kind of this new kingdom that's breaking in. That's kind of a break away from the Jews, but it's kind of not. It's getting bigger than that. That's what Paul is doing. Well, let me try and pull together some applications, right? Because I think now that we've got our head in sort of how first century religion and politics works, we can begin to think about what's happening in the text and how it applies to us. And here's my first suggestion. Paul is misunderstood by the Romans, by the Gentiles, and he's misrepresented by the Jews. I don't know if you happen to watch uh, the Archbishop on um, Q&A after Easter, but nothing has radically changed, has it? We're misunderstood and misrepresented. And I want to say to you, it's been happening for 2,000 years. So don't be surprised. You will be misunderstood and misrepresented. In fact, a little deeper than that, people will be anxious about some of your differences and the fact that you don't fit in. And you will make them nervous. Expect to be a non-conformist. This is not my former Baptist church, but if I was speaking to you as Baptists, you would love that phrase. In the 1600s, um, everyone is Anglican, in the, in, everyone in England goes to the Church of England, unless you choose to go to a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, and then you are called a nonconformist. You somehow don't fit in, you don't do what everybody else does. 
And we are, in this culture, increasingly nonconformists. If you're just tolerant, if you're just loving, if you're just affirming, if you don't judge, if you believe that everybody has the right to decide for themselves and self-actualize, just fit in with the rest of us, and if we could all do it, then we're going to make society a better place. And we are going to be, in that type of culture, non-conformists. And that will make people anxious, and they will misunderstand us and blame us for all of the social ills of our day like they did Christians in the first century. And third, I hope you're also appreciating that the gospel that Paul is bringing is not a few theological truths. We tend to imagine and we tend to talk about religion as beliefs. Oh, so this is what Christians believe about the afterlife and that's different from what Hindus believe and that's different from how Muslims think that you're saved. And, but the first century, it's not about beliefs so much. It's about rituals and corporate practices and how you hope that they will secure your well-being. You trust in those things to somehow resolve the dilemmas that exist between the gods and humanity. And so, the notion that somehow, you know, there was a difference between church and state, that didn't exist in the first century. Because the temple is also the butcher, is also the civic center, is also the warehouse. Uh, the, the thought that somehow this was part of your private life and this were your beliefs, it, it didn't work like that. That's not the religion, that's not the kingdom Paul is bringing. He's asking people to trust Jesus in all of life, right? To say, Jesus is Lord, which rivals that claim of Caesar, who wants to have your highest allegiance and for you to look to him and to trust him. And Jesus somehow brings this kingdom to earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's Jesus' kingdom coming. His kingdom will come ultimately in the future when Jesus returns, but there's a sense in which the kingdom is coming now and we're the kingdom people living by the kingdom values and that's going to differentiate us from the people of this world. Uh, and it's Jesus who is going to bring us peace and justice and security and provisions. Not Caesar, not that we believe in Caesar. What do we believe? not in, let's call it, expressive individualism. So the world will say, it's your job as a parent to tell your children that they're going to be amazing, to be the best that they can possibly be, and if you can just kind of protect them from, from suffering and evil, then they'll feel better about themselves, they'll have a high self-esteem. The higher their self-esteem is, the better that they'll be able to express themselves and be, them best, be their best selves and become and achieve all of their potential, right? That's something like the message of the world, right? And we want to say, actually, my hope for my children is not that they will become the best version of themselves, it's that they'll become more like Jesus. They're not special because they're unique, they're special because they're created in somebody else's image. 
And suffering is not something that uh, is going to lower their self-esteem. Suffering is something that produces perseverance and character and hope. And in the right amounts and in the right frameworks, God uses suffering to sanctify us, to transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Can Can you see how we have a trust in Jesus as Lord that is different from what the world is trusting in? If we talk a little bit older than the group who are parenting, let's talk about superannuation. Hasn't gone so well the last 12 months, has it? And the gospel wants to say to us, well, don't trust in your superannuation. Store up your treasures in heaven where rust and moth and economic downturns can't touch it. That's where your sense of security is. So we're not looking to our relationships or our success or our career progress or the things we can own or the the balance in our bank account to bring about peace and justice and security. We're actually looking to Jesus and the values of his kingdom and the fellowship of the kingdom people. That's where we find the antidote to loneliness. That's where we find hope and comfort and security. To put it another way, Jesus is Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. For historical reasons, it's possible in the 21st century to conceive of religion as something that I kind of do on Sundays. I come to church and I listen to the sermon and if I go to the right service, I'll stand up and I'll say the creed. All these things I believe. I believe in God. I believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus is God and man. I believe he died for my sins. And if I can profess the right beliefs, and if I can believe in Jesus as the Savior who deals with my sin, then I can go back on Monday and think about my career and my house and my children and and sort of live not all that dissimilar to everybody else. That is nothing like the world that Paul turns upside down. Following Jesus changes everything. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we might just want to stop this morning and say, You are Lord. You're Lord of our children. You're Lord of our families. You're Lord of our career. You're Lord of our possessions. You're Lord of our dreams and imaginations about what retirement or that next holiday is going to look like. These things that the world chases, they don't deliver. But Jesus, when we seek you first and your kingdom, then the things that are right and good for us, they all will be added unto us.
So we want to stop taking the good things that you've giving, given us and making them the best. And Jesus, this morning, we want to declare you as Lord over everything in our life. May we be comfortable with the label of a non-conformist who doesn't follow the patterns of this world, but Jesus, we follow you. We trust you. And Jesus, you are trustworthy. Nothing else is. Amen.